Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am your host. And today's episode will be focused on solutions, on the parallel society, on these types of ideas, applied agorism, so to say. So we are in season four and try to always give this disclaimer that uh, this podcast is intended to be listened to in its entirety from episode one to episode whatever episode we're on. But I understand that a lot of people don't do that and things do change and there are lots of angles to cover things from. So as we've worked our way through season one to interim two and a half ish three and now into four, what I've done for season four is gone back to all of the topics and the concepts that had been covered previously throughout the whole course of the podcast and look at them from a new perspective, from a more macro look, tying lots of things together that had been covered in pieces and individually and uh, to great detail on a micro level, but never really uh, tied it all in with the broader picture. So that's what I've done with season four. So if you are relatively new to the podcast, Season four will give you a very good idea of all of these things. However, you will be missing out on a lot of the more in-depth look into each of these very specific topics and concepts and time periods and events and all of these things that uh, you would get if you went back to the uh, beginning of the podcast, back to episode one. But season four, this is where we are. And at this point, I have just about caught up with everything that's been covered on this podcast. And so I've got, I think, two more episodes that will be the conclusion of season four, at least as far as I can tell that could change. I don't know. So we'll see. You'll see. It's a mystery. But the plan right now would be that I'll do this episode on these strategies of how to live outside of the system and what that looks like, how that's been done in other places, in other times, some of the philosophy behind that and the strategy and the methods, all of these kinds of things. That's what I'll be talking about today. And then next week, what I plan to cover is a very specific application of these things that I am personally involved with that basically takes all of these things, puts it into the context of people trying to get products and services outside of the system. And we have a new venture that is launching soon that has put a lot of these different things into play. Now, it's not something that you can join in remotely. So uh, don't worry, this is not a marketing scheme where I'm trying to draw you in and get money out of you. Um, you, you. I'm sorry, but you're probably not allowed to be a member if you're not local. But I will explain uh, how we are incorporating things like the Private Membership Association, the five 508C1A status for faith-based organizations, a strategy for avoiding sales and all the related regulations that come with selling sales and products, these kinds of things. We've incorporated those into a business model that uh, I believe is applied agorism. I believe it is a uh, early church Christian model of how you be in the world, but not of the world. And uh, it's applying all of these different things. So I'll, I'll get into that next week, but just as a little teaser and to fill you in on where we're going with season four and how that is coming to a close. So that's where we are. And I will, I guess, just go ahead and get into these various ideas of operating outside of the system. 
if we want to start with a very short version of the problem, so to say, the problem is the state. The problem is the culture. The problem is the corporate world. It's big tech. It's big pharma. The problem is technocracy. The problem is the experts and the science. The problem is all of these things. The problem is that we live in a society that is largely ruled over by these various entities and organizations and ideological movements and all of these things. We live in the culture that we live in. That's just the reality of uh, how we live and where we live. So uh, the problem is that we have differences of opinion as far as things like morality and ethics and things of this nature. It's the problem of ought. It's not necessarily the problem of is um, that things specifically exist. It's the problem of should they exist? Should these goals be pursued? Should we live in this way or that? And largely uh, myself and you guys as the listeners and uh, our like-minded kinfolk here, we believe that people should have the freedom and the liberty to make their own decisions, that we all as human beings have free will, and we make the decision how we are going to live, uh, what we are going to put in our bodies, uh, the how we're going to raise our families, all of these kinds of things, our, our religious beliefs. These are all personal free will choices and decisions that we all should be able to make freely. And any infringement on that is wrong. I, I will make a value judgment here, which I rarely do or try to rarely do. And I will say that that is wrong. That is immoral, at least from this perspective I'm covering, covering all this from and my personal perspective. So uh, that is immoral. It would also be immoral to cause harm to somebody else or basically to infringe on these rights and freedoms that we should all have uh, in relation to another person or their property. And so basically, if we say that we all had the free will to make our own decisions, but then we infringe on somebody else's decisions and don't let them have free will, then that would be wrong. That would be immoral. We shouldn't do that. And so uh, that's the genesis of uh, this whole idea, this whole problem. It's that we believe that this is the way society should be organized. This is how people should interact. However, the way the state operates and the way the rest of the societal apparatus operates, uh, it operates contrary to these things. It operates in an immoral manner from this perspective or an anti-biblical manner coming from a Christian perspective. And so uh, these are organizations, these are entities, these are movements that we don't really want to have anything to do with because they are counter to what we believe is right, what we believe the ought is. And so with that, we have to figure out how to respond. How then do we live within this context? And the answer that I go to is, well, I'll get to the answer. Let's go over the options first. So we do have the option to fight the system that we see there are immoralities 
in the culture we live in, or the state is corrupt with corrupt politicians, or whatever the thing is that we're picking out about the world we live in and what's wrong with it, we can fight that. We can try to vote really hard. We can try to change legislation. We can try to call out specific politicians on their immorality and their contradictory behavior. We can uh, we can rise up and protest. We can do these kinds of things. We can try to fight the system. But in reality, that often does not work out very well. Number one, I would personally argue that that's not in line with the ideal of how we should handle things. That aspect of rebellion and revolution and confrontation and violence and these types of things, uh, that is not the way that I personally follow and go for. But also, when you look historically, those things often do not lead in very good directions. Now, there are caveats there, but even the caveats don't always work out in the long run. So you've got something like the United States of America that rebelled from the king, and people think of that as a very wonderful thing, yet we live in a world and the country has been in a state for so many decades, a few hundred years, that we are not as free as the colonies were under the technical rulership of the king. So back then, they had a largely libertarian society, self-governing colonies, these kinds of things, to a large degree. Now, not completely, that is admitted, but to a large degree, they did what they felt like they wanted. And then, decades later, we skip ahead in the history timeline, and they have a new centralized government. Not a king this time, it's a little different uh, formulation here, but in the end, it ended up taxing them to an even greater degree, restricting their liberties to an even greater degree, and had many other issues. And then you skip all the way ahead to where we are today, and it's not even really comparable. So while one might say that that revolution was a really good thing to break away from the king, um, it comes at the expense of then being subject to a new king, so to say. And uh, in a historical timeline that when you look at it, it is not a good thing as far as how the individual relates to being ruled. And so that's that's the issue. Anytime you have a revolution and you have rebellion and these kinds of things, they often backfire. And it's not necessarily because the cause was wrong. Often the cause is good and true. It's just that historically it seems that that method often backfires. It often ends up in the long run in a worse off position than prior. And so that's not universal, but that is something more objective than at least my personal view of that's just not the way you should do things. So that's one option is to fight the system. Now, the other option that a lot of people go with is that you should reform the system, that you should change the system, that you should get involved, you should uh, vote and gather up local votes to change regulation, to change the politicians. If the left is in charge and you don't like the left, then we need to vote the right into positions of power so we can get more traditional conservative government and you know whatever it is your goal is. But that's what some people believe, that they should be a politician, then maybe they can choose what legislation goes through. They can have a say at that higher level. 
these types of things. Maybe the same in the corporate world, that if I'm a CEO of a multi-million dollar company, then I can have a big influence on others and I can really um, make a difference in the corporate world and have a company and organization that operates differently than these others. Uh, But in reality, when it comes to being a CEO, as well as when it comes to being a politician, it's very difficult, if possible at all, to get up to that level without compromising on this moral stance that I stated at the beginning, that everyone should have free will and not be infringed upon, uh, and we should do no harm to any person or their property. That typically, the way to climb that corporate ladder, especially at the executive level, involves things like lying and stepping on other people to get even higher and doing things that would be arguably immoral for the sake of growing your company or for the sake of getting more sales or getting more customers or whatever the thing is. It's not necessarily that the goal or the thing or the intent is always bad, but it is very rare that people get to that level and stay at that level without being involved in methods that are very questionable. And that's, again, corporate, that's political, that's all of these systems that we're talking about here. You can even go cultural and ideological movements where you see people get involved in something like the climate agenda, the environmental movement, the feminist movement, uh, Black Lives Matter. There's all of these different things where the cause may be true and just, but getting involved with it and trying to steer it in the right direction and, oh, they've just gone astray on this one issue, but we'll get it back on track, uh, that usually doesn't really work out very well. So again, from a more objective, practical, historical outlook, that's kind of just the way it is. From a moral perspective or a religious perspective, uh, being involved in those things is immoral. That's, uh, I would argue, that's just wrong to do. And so, uh, in general, uh, fighting the system as well as reforming the system, uh, both of those are options that are not ideal. And so, we need a different strategy, a different approach. And that approach is one that should be ideal. It should be moral. It shouldn't compromise. It should have historical precedent that is positive and effective. That is the type of approach that we want. That is what we're going for. And my argument, at least, is what I'm talking about today is that third option. It is the idea of the parallel society, of the second realm, of agorism, the counter-economy, of the parallel polis, of the early Christian church, of mutual aid groups and assistance groups, these types of things. That is a way where we are not fighting the system directly. We're not rebelling or revolting in that form, but we are also not trying to change and reform and get involved with these immoral and corrupt systems that we live in. Uh, rather, we are creating our own systems. So you, you can go with this kind of tagline that the system is broken, build something better. And that's what we're doing as a response to the problem being this world that we live in. We are creating the solution where we create a different way to organize as a society, to interact with each other as individuals, to participate in commerce and business, these kinds of things. We can do it all under this context of 
the parallel society, the second realm, whatever you want to call it. And so that is the strategy that I cover. And the first concept to touch on here would be agorism. It's one that I've covered quite a bit. It's one that I think is a very good concept and ideology or whatever you want to call it. But the idea of agorism is that you're operating in the counter-economy. It comes from the word agora, which is, uh, if you look at like Greek city-states, they had an agora that's the center of town, that's a marketplace, that's where people would meet and gather and talk, that's where the philosophers would teach. All of these things would take place in this place, in the agora. And with agorism, what we are doing is operating outside of the system in what's called the counter-economy. The counter-economy is uh, really involves any action that goes against the state, according to kind of official definition, so to say. So this could be things like under-the-table transactions, operating without a license, civil disobedience, all kinds of things like this. So if the state has a regulation against something, and you are not necessarily in compliance in all ways, um, that would be considered the counter-economy. Again, it's counter to the rest of the economic activity in the jurisdiction that you are involved in. And so uh, what agorism is, is operating in this counter-economy. Agorism is all about not operating in the current system under the current models and regulations, but operating in a different one, in the counter one. And so um, the one catch and caveat here would be that a lot of people would think of the what's called the red market or the pink market or things like this. And uh, so basically you have the white market, which is operating in compliance to all of the regulation and the state mandates and what the government says to do and how the system operates. The white market is the system, so to say. Then you have the black market, and that would be everything is illegal. Everything done in the black market is uh, completely illegal. Then you have what's called the gray market, where it's something that does have regulation, and in some contexts, it is outright illegal, but not in every one. And so it's kind of like something like uh, selling alcohol. Uh, Selling alcohol is not always illegal. But in many circumstances, it is, and it is highly regulated. And there are lots of other things like that where we have things that aren't in and of themselves illegal, but they are so highly regulated and there are so many different conditions and so many laws around them that you might be doing this thing that isn't necessarily illegal, but doing it in an illegal way kind of a thing. And that would still be considered the counter economy. That's more the gray market. There are uh, lines and shades of gray here where it could even be a legal activity, but it is outside of the system, and it is operating outside of public regulation, or it could be um, that there is a public regulation that grants the ability to do some things. So think of something like homeschooling. There are countries and there are places where homeschooling is just outright illegal. And within the United States, there are various states that have fairly strict policies and regulations over how you can homeschool and what you have to report and what you have to do and how you have to structure. But it, the the outright act of teaching your children is not in any way an illegal thing across the board. And so that's a bit of a gray market. It depends on your jurisdiction, and it depends on how you relate to that. Are you totally outside of all regulation. So you're you're doing this thing, this homeschooling thing in an illegal way. 
that might be more phasing towards the dark gray as far as the white to black market and the gray in the middle. But you might be participating in in homeschooling in a way that is allowed by, say, your state. So you might have a state that says you can homeschool if you want. You just have to tell us, you know, who your kids are and how old they are and what grade they're in. And, you know, that's about it. And so you could do that. And if you're doing that, you are technically doing this thing, this homeschooling thing in a legal way while still being outside of the system. And the system would be uh, state schooling. It would be the public education system. It might even be included in private uh, schools and things of that nature, charter schools, all of these different things. You're outside of all of that. You're outside of the system. So you're not necessarily straight white market, but you're not doing anything illegal. So you're more light gray, so to say. And so there is this spectrum that you could choose from. But regardless of this spectrum, what would be stressed is that within agorism and in the counter economy, there is no red market activity going on. And in addition to this, there is no white market activity going on. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the counter economy. It would be the regular economy. So going back to the idea of the red markets, I've already talked about the white market. The red market is anything where you have violence and force. So if someone is being forced to do something, if violence is being initiated on somebody, if there is coercion involved, that is the red market. Now, uh, some people would make the distinction that you have kind of the red market in a black market context. So think of cartels and gangs and mafias, things like that. But you also have the red market within the context of the white market. So you have perfectly legal violence and coercion that happens through the state. And so that might be referred to as the pink market. It's, it's red, it's violence, it's force, it's coercion, but it is completely legal. So it's mixed with the white. So that's pink. But either way, when you have violence, force, coercion, or when you have the state's blessing and the state's approval and you're following all the regulations, um, these things are not participating in agorism and the counter economy. Those are participating in the regular economy and doing things that are immoral. And so um, agorism is operating outside of that without violence or force through voluntary interaction among individuals. So that's the idea. And that would be overall, if I had to pick a concept that I agree with the most, agorism would probably be that concept. So moving on to the next concept here, that would be the first realm, second realm perspective. And this is all of these are similar because it's all talking about this same idea. But uh, what the how the distinction is made with first realm, second realm is that the first realm does not respect self-ownership and liberty. It is collective in nature over individual in nature. You have government or uh, some sort of authority that is in supreme power and ruling over people. Uh, you have things like taxes and regulation and immoral markets, these kinds of things. These are what happen in the first realm. So you could think the world, you could think the system, you could think the state, all of these things. That's all first realm activity. Now, then you also have the second realm. The second realm is simply not involved with the first realm. 
So uh, with the second realm, it is more akin to the counter economy. It is a a realm that does respect self-ownership. It does respect liberty. It is individualistic over collectivist. And it does not have a government or uh, an authority that is in a supreme position over everything. There are no taxes. There are no regulations. There are no immoral markets either. And so this would be uh, what people would consider the second realm. Now, with this, there are many different ideologies and applications and things that come up in the second realm uh, to give you an idea of some of the things that are really big in the second realm philosophy. uh, Security culture is a really big deal. And so it's this idea of if you are operating in the second realm and not in the first realm, you probably don't want people to know who you are. You don't want them to be able to tie you to certain activities because often you're dealing in black market and gray market activities. Again, this whole idea of the counter economy. And so you might want to use some sort of anonymous uh, name and information and that kind of thing, operate with no KYC interactions. And privacy is something that is highly emphasized. That's one of the really big deals with the second realm because there's a lot of risk there. If you are operating outside of the first realm, the first realm uh, might then come after you because there is an authority, a government. There are taxation and regulation and all of this immoral activity that goes on, and they will infringe upon you because they do not respect self-ownership and liberty. They are collectivist. And so that's just by nature what the first realm is. So it shouldn't be surprising that if you're operating in the second realm, they might want to come after you in some way. But uh, that is why in the second realm, you do focus on security, culture, privacy, these kinds of things. Now, some other examples of this would be uh, anarcho-capitalism. So if you think of an ANCAP market of sorts, uh, that would be second realm. If you think of crypto anarchy, that's its own uh, movement or ideology or whatever you want to call it, uh, that would also be second realm thinking. You've got things called uh, TAZs or temporary autonomous zones where people will set up these areas. And it could be a shipping container or a single room, or it could be an entire block. It could be, heck, an entire small country or town or whatever. But areas where um, for a temporary amount of time, activity occurs in there, uh, however activity wants to occur as far as the second realm is concerned. And that area is deemed autonomous outside of the jurisdiction of any of the first realm authorities. And so that is something that also does come under attack at times. Uh, You've got things like uh, proxy merchants. And so these would be people that play the middleman between the first realm and the second realm. So uh, so long as the second realm is the minority, and that will probably be the case for quite a while, people will still need to interact with the first realm to get the things that they need to operate in this world that we live in. And so you have this new job opportunity, so to say, where people can play the middleman and bring things from the first realm into the second realm or bring things from the second realm into the first realm. And uh, they, of course, would charge a fee and make money in doing that. And that is another example of second realm activity. Now, uh, moving on from first realm, second realm, another related perspective would be VANU. And VANU stands roughly for Voluntary Not Vulnerable. And their whole idea 
is that we should become resilient to the coercion of the state through lifestyle change. And so what they want to do is change their lifestyles, change the way they live, so that they are very resilient when it comes to the infringements of the state. So they are voluntary, but they are not vulnerable. They focus a lot on things like family and community and self-sufficiency. So oftentimes people will have mobile houses or places that they live, whether it be some sort of trailer or camper or whatever it might be. Some people camp all over the place. Some people have small properties all around, say, the U.S. or around their region, and they can stay at different ones at different times but have no permanent residence. Uh, That is a big thing moving around in the Vanu world, it appears at least. And uh, I do see why, because that would be a lot harder for the state to infringe upon them and coerce them if they actually are not in one place permanently. So that can help a lot. But there also are some communities that operate in this way where they just don't interact much with the state. They don't draw the eye of the state upon them. They are largely self-sufficient, which makes them even more resilient. And so uh, that is another idea there. The next concept is one that is more historical and well-known, so to say, and I'll spend a little more time on this, and this would be um, Charter 77 and the Parallel Polis. So uh, with this, you had, if you think of the context of the Soviet Union, the communist government that was very oppressive, things were falling apart, it wasn't going well for the common person, and there were a lot of people that were not very happy. Um, Within this context, there was something that started up called Charter 77. They said that they were a loose, informal, and open association of people united by the will to strive individually and collectively for respect for human and civil rights. That was kind of their mission statement. And since they were a loose, informal, and open association of people, by the laws of the Soviet Union, the Soviet government could not crack down on them as easily. As many may know, one of the things that contributed greatly to the Soviet Union finally collapsing was the black market. You had so much economic activity occurring outside of the system that it started to uh, have a major effect on the system itself. And uh, this was the realm that Charter 77 uh, often was involved with. While it wasn't only this, this was more of their style where, uh, like they said, they wanted to strive individually and collectively for respect for human and civil rights. Now, the Soviet Union is not well known for human and civil rights. And so a lot of what they wanted to do and a lot of their association was outside of the Soviet system. So oftentimes, these families would get together and uh, educate their own children. Uh, Sometimes they still had to go to the Soviet schools, but then when they came home, they would give them a different education. So homeschooling on steroids, so to say. And you had economic activity that occurred within these different families that were part of these informal groups and associations where they would uh, trade food, they would trade services and things like this, but not officially. And so again, this is more black market, gray market outside of the system. That was the way that they operated. And this was something that was pretty effective. 
Now, one of the people that was big in this movement was Vaclav Binda. The other that uh, might be familiar to some folks would be Vaclav Havel, and he is also a fairly well-known figure. But uh, Vaclav Binda, I will focus on because of his concept of the parallel polis. So what he felt like they should do is to create an independent society that is not oppressed by the laws and decisions of representatives of public authorities. So uh, he believed that this independent society should be based on its own values, not values that are forced on it by a centralized authority. And that's the idea of the parallel polis, where it is a society, it is a polis, it is a an association of people, uh, yet it is outside of the official centralized governmental forces that are forcing and coercing people to act in certain ways and forcing values upon them. So it is operating at the same time in the same region, but it is not the same one. It's a different society. It's a separate independent society. It is parallel. And so that's the idea of the parallel polis. Now, he did specify uh, what he called the pillars of the parallel polis, and I think that these are things that are worthy of reviewing and thinking about. So uh, one was constantly monitoring rights and freedoms and being willing to act in their defense. So this is the idea of keeping an eye on what's going on in the world, what laws are changing, what immoral activities are the government participating in, all of these kinds of things. It is good to know about them. Uh, For example, with COVID-19, if you didn't know anything about uh, the research that went on uh, behind the scenes previous to COVID-19 coming out or uh, Event 201 and all the players involved or all the connections with the pharmaceutical companies such as Moderna is a really big one. Um, Lots of things like that, the mRNA stuff. There's a lot going on there that if you don't know about it, then you're kind of in the dark in a lot of areas. And so this idea of constantly monitoring rights and freedoms and being willing to act in their defense, um, this is kind of similar to keeping an eye on what's going on in the world. Now, rights and freedoms, that can be defined uh, in lots of different ways, but uh, the idea is where is their government overreach? Where are they infringing on the things that we believe we should be able to do? Are we willing to act in their defense? So the bury your head in the sand strategy is not one that he would recommend in any way. Now, the next point was was that they should build an alternative culture and an alternative art scene. So this would be things like art and music and uh, what is popular within their culture, these types of things, that it shouldn't just be a political movement, but rather it should be something that's all-encompassing, that includes the culture. And we have lots of issues with our modern culture today and the modern values, things like the Church of Woke, these kinds of things going on today. So creating an alternative culture, alternative media, alternative art, alternative music by Plato's definition, uh, that is something that we should definitely be pursuing. The next point was that there should be parallel education and science. So he gave examples like residential seminars, educational societies, and academies. So uh, this would be along the lines of modern homeschooling or, uh, what is it, PEAs, private education association. So it's like a PMA, but specifically for education. Uh, You've also got this aspect of science, where are you going to leave all scientific discovery 
in the hands of the state? Do you think that's a very good idea? Uh, Again, has uh, the coronavirus shown you uh, some examples of how that could go awry? So uh, that is something that is a big part that should be something that people focus on. So again, it's not just politics. It's not just what is the state doing. It's we want an alternative culture. We need parallel alternative education and science. Uh, He also said that uh, parallel information systems for free dissemination of information were very important. And that's the whole idea of things like blockchain or privacy-centric messaging applications or um, alternative communications. There are people working on radio communication, things like that. Our local Agorist group is having a presentation on alternative communications uh, tomorrow, at least as of this recording. And so I'll, I'm very interested. I don't know much about that aspect. But um, being able to disseminate information and get attain information that is not tainted by censorship and manipulation is extremely important. Being able to communicate with one another in, say, the second realm, in this parallel society, is very important. And again, like the second realm idea, security culture and privacy are important aspects to this so that you avoid things like manipulation and censorship. Another thing that he talked about was that there should be a parallel economy that was based on reciprocity and trust. So um, he believed that resources should not be dependent on uh, the control of monetary tools. Now, this would get into communism, but it also gets into things like the Federal Reserve, where the economy often is largely influenced by manipulated interest rates, by printing money, by giving out grants and things of this nature, stimulus checks, things like this. And so um, he believed that that was not a good thing, that we shouldn't have resources that were tied directly to these things, that, um, that the economy should not be dependent on these types of controls, that instead, the parallel economy should be based on reciprocity and trust, that you should build relationships, you should know people, you should be able to reciprocate in kind when people are treating you well, you treat them well, that this is just very basic, I would argue, very basic morality, love your neighbor kind of idea. And uh, he believed that's what the economy should be based on, not the coercion and force and regulation of the state. The next part was that there should be parallel political structures. So his question was, what would replace the authoritarian regime? So if the regime falls, what do we have in its place? You can go to the Rome example I've used a lot, that when Rome fell, the church was there. Something always fills that power gap. When the church fell, the state was there. The lords, the nobility, the uh, the beginnings, the proto-nation states, and they filled that power gap. Well, what happens when one of these nation states falls? Who fills that gap? Is it some uh, global organization that steps in, like a NATO or somebody like that? Or Is it a a more grassroots movement that is focused on uh, all of these things, on the counter-economy, on the second realm, on voluntary interaction between people? Well, if there is a movement already going on and already established within a given region, and that region falls in relation to the authority then uh, that parallel society could viably fill that power gap. And that is possible. So he would frame this as parallel political structures. Uh, I would refrain from the political aspect of that, that instead of having a political structure, maybe you could say an 
organizational structure or a hierarchical structure because hierarchy is not necessarily bad. Organization is not necessarily bad. Having leadership is not in and of itself a bad thing. But ruling over other people, using force and coercion over other people, having one centralized authority, these are things that I would argue are not the way to go for very many reasons. Now, the final thing that he mentioned was that there should be parallel foreign policy to acquire financial and mental resources. And so especially in the day of the internet today, this becomes much easier. We do need to be able to interact with outsiders, people outside of our uh, given region or even our given country in order to facilitate trade, in order to get products and services, in order to get ideas, these mental resources from people that are outside of our sphere. And we might have some issues where our country might be blocking that in a lot of ways or our country might be making decisions. Our leaders, uh, so to say, I guess leaders should be in air quotes there, but our our rulers uh, might be acting in ways that are contrary to people that live in other places and they might not want to interact with our country. Well, we live in our country, even though we don't have anything to do, say, with our rulers. Uh, So we would need some separate form of relationship building, connection, form policy there so that we can be on good terms as individuals or as an association of individuals, even if people are not on good terms with our country. So for example, if uh, China, which is a very controlling authoritarian regime, if China had a bad relationship with another country, which they have a few countries that are not very fond of them, there still might be an association of Chinese people in a small local region that other countries and other people would have no problems working with and might love to work with them and might agree with what they're doing. And that little town or that little region or that little group or association, they might be acting in a parallel status to the Chinese regime. And so uh, they would need a way to connect outside of that official relationship uh, from their rulers to the others. They need their independent foreign policy. So that is uh, the conclusion of what Vaclav Binda talked about in relation to the parallel polis. Those were all the pillars of the polis. And I think at least I tried to um, incorporate how those would fit into today's world. And I think that at least in some way, they all do. The next example that I was going to give is uh, mutual aid groups or mutual assistance groups. These can be things like secret societies. These could also be things like churches. They could be militias. They could be all kinds of uh, different things. They could be charities. They could be lots of different associations of people. They could just be informal assistance groups. We have a few mutual assistance groups in our greater area locally, and I know people that run different ones. And uh, they have different missions. They have different beliefs. They have different ways that they do things. Uh, But the goal for all of them is to create an association of people that help each other. They assist one another. They provide mutual aid for one another. And um, that is something that is very effective. And when you are doing that, you are, again, not as reliant on the system. You are much more resilient to the coercion of the state. You are operating in a parallel society manner, this parallel polis aspect. That's how you're operating, not by relying on these various systems and interactions with the system that uh, our modern world has. And so the mutual aid, mutual assistance groups, uh, they are operating on this level as well. 
Now, uh, similar, I guess, but more independent would be the various Anabaptist groups. So think the Amish and the Mennonites. Now, there are varying degrees of how these people operate and how um, they act out their beliefs. But on the more traditional side, at least, the conservative side, most of them form their own independent communities where they live within their own communities. The community owns large uh, tracts of land. They are very largely self-sufficient. I think they try to be completely self-sufficient. And uh, they have their own little community, their own little culture, their own little economy, their own things. Now, they do interact with the outside world. Uh, Oftentimes, people... um, uh, they interact with their economy, so to say, where they're buying and selling things and people are coming up and visiting and uh, the Amish could do services like put on a roof for somebody or whatever. And uh, these things do exist. So it's not that they are completely isolated and walled off, but they are uh, pretty much isolated um, as a community and independent as a community. Now that has its pros and it has its cons, but it's an example of this where they are living out this parallel society, parallel polis idea, and it's something that is very effective for them. And so um, that is one option here. Another one that's good to look at is the historical example of the original Christian church. The church, as I've covered before, so I won't go into detail here, but the church did um, oppose the religious leaders, the religious institutions of their day. They opposed mainstream culture, the libertine Roman culture of their day, and they opposed the state. They opposed Rome. They had some pretty big issues with Rome. Rome was killing them. (laughs) They were literally torturing and killing Christians. So um, yes, they opposed all of these different things. The entire system, so to say, wasn't just the culture. It wasn't just the state. It wasn't just the institutionalized religion. It wasn't just one thing or another. It was the whole thing. But they still lived under and within the context of Rome. They didn't rebel, but instead they used direct action and parallel systems that were outside of the uh, systems that they lived in in the secular sense. They handled disputes and legal matters themselves. They had their own charities. They built a tight-knit community. They educated themselves. They refused largely any sort of political means to achieving anything. They did it all within the church, within this set of believers. But it wasn't in an isolated way, let's say like the Amish or the Mennonites. It was in a way where they had outreach to the Roman citizens. The best example I always go to is that uh, Rome at one point complained There is a letter where one, I think it's a Roman magistrate of some kind, and he's writing to another, and he's complaining that these Christians, they're not only taking care of their own members, but they're taking care of Roman citizens as well, and it's giving Rome a bad name, and the Christians are going out with their own welfare system kind of a thing, and and Rome was a little upset with this. And so uh, that was the approach that the early Christians had, was that they did not agree with these systems that they that they lived in, they lived in the world and within these immoral uh, aspects—the culture, the state, the whatever—but they didn't want to uh, participate, nor did they want to rebel. Instead, they created their own parallel system. They built out their system that was better, and it was uh, very effective. So, again, going back to that practical, more objective aspect of looking historically at how these things work out in the long run, well, Christianity 
basically took over the Western world within a few hundred years. So if you want to talk a success story, that was extremely successful. Now, you can give the caveat that as soon as they got involved with the systems again and stopped participating in this parallel society approach, uh, corruptions entered in very quickly. And uh, in the long run, it ended up not working out uh, according to a more pure ideological view of how they started. So, for example, you have Constantine, and you have a lot of what happened after him, where the Christian church started to get involved in these political means. And like I said, the original Christian church was very against that. At least the majority of the Christian fathers that I have read early, early on were very against that. You weren't allowed to wear the purple. You weren't allowed to be a magistrate. You weren't allowed to be a soldier unless you were forced to. And even then, you weren't allowed to carry out a soldier's duties. There's all these kinds of things. And uh, as soon as the church started to uh, meld with the state, with that secular system, that's when the church had a lot of issues. That's when the corruption really creeped in. And that's when, as far as the history is concerned, uh, that's when things kind of went downhill in a lot of ways. Yet, at the same time, they still did take over the Western world. So even though there is that caveat, it still overall as a movement was extremely successful. But when you look at where did they go wrong, it was when they became incorporated with the state. It's when they stepped out of the second realm and back into the first realm. It's when they stepped out of the counter economy and into the white market. It's uh, even when they got involved in the red market, you could say the crusades. Um, it's when they no longer were a parallel polis, they just were the polis. So they just got involved with the polis, reformed it themselves, and went that option. So again, you can rebel, you can reform, or you can create your own. They started off by creating their own. Then they switched over to the Reformation model and uh, Reformation in the sense of reforming the the systems that they were involved in. And uh, that didn't really go well. But under the parallel model, uh, that went extremely well. And that's the one that I would highly recommend. That's the one that I preach. And that's the one that uh, I believe from a religious perspective, moral perspective, I think that is the one that people should use. That is the approach that people ought to pursue. That's my personal stance. But I also believe that when you look historically, fairly objectively and practically, that's a very effective approach, especially compared to the other two approaches. I believe it is more effective, it has more historical precedent, and it has more success in the long run than these other approaches. And so, that is why that's the approach that I take personally. That's why that's an approach that I cover a lot on this show. And that is why you are getting the next episode of this podcast, specifically on an application of these things. And hopefully it's one that you guys can take and work with. So if you are interested in something like a PMA, if you're interested in, well, what is a faith-based organization under the 508C1A clause by the IRS? Um, what does that mean? And what protections does that offer? How can I interact with other people in a way where I don't have to deal with um, the long arm of the state coming in and trying to take out my tax dollars or put me in jail or regulate my business out of existence or whatever the case may be. There are ways of operating in the gray market that are not illegal the way that I set them up, but that are uh, doing things that in other contexts and in other environments would be illegal. And so that's 
that's the quandary here, is how do we operate in a way where we are the parallel society, but we are not doing things that are outright illegal that'll draw the state down upon us? And how do we do these in a way where we have multiple protections that are stacked above us so that if they do come after us for whatever reason, again, second realm, first realm, the first realm does come after the second realm. The regular economy does attack the counter economy. Uh, that's just the way it works. The you know, Rome did attack the church. And so the, when the state does come after you or when some other aspect of the culture, maybe cancel culture comes after you, how can you protect yourself? And so uh, those are the types of things that I'll talk about next week. And hopefully that'll be something that is very practical and applicable that uh, you can implement in various ways and feel free to reach out to me and ask me about different things when we get there. So that is everything I have for this episode. I would definitely like to say thank you especially to the patrons of the show that are giving money to support the show, to pay for things like the Audible subscription that I have, books that I've had to order for research, uh, website hosting, uh, podcast hosting, all the different things. I really appreciate that. That does mean a lot. And that is how I pay for all of these things. So thank you very much. Also, thank you to people that have been willing to leave ratings and reviews. I uh, don't get them very often, but when I do, they have been very glowing and very positive. Outside of, I think, the second review I ever got, someone was upset because I dared call this show Our Foundations, but I did not talk about the Native Americans. How shameful. And I only got three stars from that person. But other than that, all of the reviews have been glowing and very positive. Five star, wonderful. So thank you to everyone that has taken the time to do so. That does definitely help as people are looking up the show, looking up a certain subject. They see that it's got a lot of ratings. It's got a lot of high ratings. They see some positive reviews. And uh, yes, the next logical conclusion would be they listen to the show and check it out. So thank you for participating in that. But overall, just thank you for listening. If you have any questions, any comments, any concerns, please reach out. It's at ourfoundations at protonmail.com. And until next time, I'm out. Peace. This has been Our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye.